Welcome to the Blue Wives Tribe podcast, a place where we share with you strategies, resources, and how to maintain your mental health so you can thrive as a law enforcement officer wife. I'm Nicole Vienna, licensed psychologist, fellow law enforcement officer wife, and founder of Blue Wives Tribe, a global online community for police wives. Welcome, Chief Thomas. Thank you for being on the podcast. Can you please share with our audience, our members, a little bit about what you do and your background? Well, thanks for having me, Dr. Vienna. A little bit about my background. I am now entering my 36th year of law enforcement, uh, and that career started in 1984 with the Los Angeles Police Department, where I served for 21 years, and then I retired and made the decision I wanted to try another type of law enforcement, and I did my research, and I chose campus law enforcement. And uh, for the past now 15 years, I have been in campus policing. I'm currently at the University of Southern California, where I'm now the chief, but my first campus policing position was not in Southern California. It was at the University of District of Columbia in Washington, D.C., where I served there for a year as a deputy chief. And then I came back home to Southern California, where I was hired by USC Department of Public Safety in October of 2006 as a captain, and I was promoted a few years later to assistant chief, and I have been the chief now for about seven years. So currently, the the chief, as I mentioned, Department of Public Safety, we're a pretty large campus department with about 300 and about 302 officers, both a combination of sworn peace officers, post-certified officers that make arrests and do all those things. We got about 105 of those, and then about another 150 or so uh, civilianized security guard level full-time officers. So we're pretty big. Mm-hmm. as campus police departments go. So at the USC, that's actually, I have to always let my listeners know how I know the speakers, and I forgot to mention that. So I met Chief Thomas actually through my husband, Ryan, who you guys went to school together for your Master of Leadership, right? Right, yeah. Did I get that right? Ryan, yeah, Ryan was in my cohort. Uh, <laughs> And we both, we were both in the same class and we graduated in 2016. So uh, I've known you guys now about eight years. I mean, something like that. And I'm, I'm, I'm wearing my USC gear today just to support you guys because I'm, I'm outnumbered. I'm, I'm, Thank you. I, I'm, an, I'm an Arizona Wildcat, so I'm definitely outnumbered with, by you guys. <laughs> well, see, Ryan will tell you, even though I got my degree at, at USC, my master's, but I got yeah. my undergraduate degree at UCLA. So That's I'm right. a so Ryan <laughs> much grief about that. That's <laughs> right. So I'm kind of both a U.S. Trojan and a Bruin. Yeah, that's that's a tough one, huh? <laughs> it, it can you're, you're, be, but I, I still I still always say, and you know this, it's always your undergrad. Yeah, exactly. I agree. I agree. Well, I'm going to jump right into our first question. And these questions did come from majority of our members that submitted that are really excited to actually hear from you. And as I mentioned, I was in our pre-call, I was telling Chief Thomas, I'm looking for my, my notes from the wives that submitted. There was a really nice message that came through actually from one of our members that said, you know, I don't have any questions. Looking forward to hearing the podcast and please tell him thank you for what he has done and thank his team and to please stay safe. So I wanted to give a shout out to that member because I thought that was really sweet. Well, I'll give her a shout out too, because at a time like now, that's more valuable than gold. So thank you, whoever uh, said that. Yeah, I agree. So 
We're going to have the conversations, the tough questions. So number one, first thing was tell us if you can about your experience with racism growing up personally, and then maybe how it may or may not have occurred within being a police officer in your own department. For those viewers that don't know me, I'm African-American. You obviously know that. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, growing up, I grew up in South Los Angeles, South Central Los Angeles. And at the time when I grew up, there weren't very good relationships between residents of Los Angeles and LAPD or the LA County Sheriff's Department, which I lived at one at different times in both jurisdictions. So like so many of my peers, we did not feel we had good relations. As a matter of fact, we know we didn't have good relations. Mm-hmm. Many times where, you know, growing up and never had any trouble. I was too afraid of my mom to ever get in any type of trouble. So <laughs> had any troubles with the law. It was, just wasn't me. But at the same time, you know, I was often stopped. And I, and I knew I hadn't done anything wrong. And it was, well, you fit the description of, well, and I'm thinking, well, everybody fits the description of in this neighborhood. And it was right. those type of incidences that ingrained in me early on. I didn't have, I had no reason to have a favorable impression of law enforcement because my contacts, I didn't know any cops. And all of the interactions that I had were were negative, and mm-hmm. uh, and it was hard to to know you hadn't done anything wrong, but to know that you were frequently stopped and sometimes handcuffed mm-hmm. when you knew you hadn't done anything. So it was difficult to grow up in that environment, and particularly when, as I said before, you know you're going to school, you know you're making good grades, and you know you're doing all those things, you still feel as if, you know, why does this keep happening? And mm-hmm. there is no explanation because they don't give you an explanation mm-hmm. as to why you really were stopped. But it was just very frequent. And mm-hmm. it was, it, it, it made me very angry as a teenager. Mm-hmm. Would that kind of be leading to the ideas or the assumptions of like, where some and I, I grew up similar in a Harbor City, Narbonne High School yeah. area. Shout out to LAPD. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I was stopped too, but for different reasons. But is that kind of like, does that lead to maybe the assumption or the idea that the police might abuse their authority? Like they do it because they can kind of a thing? You know, uh, yes. To, to answer your question, yes. Because, and I, and I think part of it was just, there's not a lot of training regarding cultural sensitivities when you Mm -hmm. go to the academy. There's not any, I never got any training that basically explained to me why black people are suspicious of the police, why, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, none of these things were, so, and for me, it was natural, you know, growing up in that environment, but so many of my classmates who came to Los Angeles from other parts of the country to be a Los Angeles police officer, they had no points of reference. Many of my classmates had never met a black person until they were in the academy. So then you put that same 21-year-old, 22-year-old, which is what we were, together, and then you put them in a place like, you know, let's say 77th, Mm -hmm. which is predominantly black. All they have is stereotypes and examples of, you know, everybody you're coming in contact with is black and you're arresting them. You have a negative perception and your implicit biases are what you act off of. Mm -hmm. So all of those things combined, and these are things that, Nicole, I learned 
once I became an officer, because when I was a teenager, I thought they just don't like me because I'm black. Uh-huh. Once I became an officer, I learned it's not so much that, it's because they're unfamiliar with. And once those notions become broken down, I think we'll be in a better place because I, you know, I had to be inside to understand it's not as simple as they don't like me because I'm black. They don't like me because they don't know me. Uh And they don't like me because, and it wasn't that they didn't like me. They're acting on their implicit biases. Right. And I think that's a good segue to the implicit bias. That's what they, they know. And I think in the 21st century policing task force report, task force report, and one of their pillars and calls to action, I guess you could call it, was or is the uh, going over that implicit bias and getting more training on that. So can you speak a little bit more about implicit bias and maybe like how we all have it? If that if that's a fair we statement. <laughs> okay. That's the thing, that's the reality that we all we we all have implicit biases. And oftentimes those biases are structured along race and gender and those type of things that allows for prejudice and bias actions to occur. So when I look at implicit biases, and you're absolutely correct, Nicole, we all have them. And it's a matter of how do we unlearn those biases? Mm-hmm. How do we, you know, get past those biases? Because it's one thing to have them, because you're going to have them. I mean, right. I mean because it's, it's easy for me to say as well, in some of the divisions that I've worked, that the majority that I have arrested are black. So I do have that implicit bias, but I don't have, I don't act on those. That's not the motivating factor. Mm-hmm. I recall listening to something some years ago that when you implicit bias means that an officer sees two groups of young men on one side of the street, maybe dressed the same way, white young men on one side and black on another side, those mm-hmm. implicit biases will cause that officer to act one way and maybe stop and have uh, a conversation be a negative or positive because they African-American uh, young men as opposed to totally disregarding the others because of the, the preconceived bias that they're, they're probably up to something that possibly could be suspicious or criminal. So that's the way I see it. And it's, uh, it clouds uh, critical thinking and judgment, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but there's no place in it in policing, particularly the acting on it. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think we do not a very good job at mm-hmm. training our officers because it's a hard thing to train. I've been through implicit bias training. And mm-hmm. the first thing that you get is officers saying, I'm not racist, uh-huh. I'm not prejudiced, and we are. We are. Uh-huh. We, 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 have to, we have to confront those things. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I, I want to say that our brains, you know, there's this concept, I always tie in a little bit of mental, mental health stuff, you know, given my background, but our brains, we, we have this, there's this concept of neuroplasticity, you know, so it is possible, you know, to unlearn and learn new things. Um, we know this since it's, we have the science to back that up. So it is possible. So I wanted to go back to if I skipped over the second part of that first question was if you want to go through your experience with racism in growing up in the department that you started with, if that ever occurred or what that, if it did, what that was like and how'd you handle it? 
Yeah, I, I, you cut off a little bit. So are you asking, did I experience my experience of racism in the department? Yes, yes, and how you, okay. you might have handled that. You know what? Uh, I would almost have to say, you know, once I got in, the transformation had begun where I didn't, I didn't take the easy shortcut of, of putting everything that happened to me as a result of that person being racist. Call me naive, call me you know, whatever, but I tended to look at some of the things that were just as a result of people not knowing, you know, mm -hmm. people not quite understanding my background. So I didn't automatically default, but I can't say that there were incident incidences where um, there were things that were said, you know, where and I recall one incident when I was working games and one of the officers used the N-word uh, and referring to, you know, trying to tell us, describe a person that we were, we should be looking looking at. And he slipped and used the N-word. And I do recall myself and my partner, that, and mind you, there were uh, other black officers in the unit. And I remember going to the supervisor because it was said over the wire. So it was, we were all undercover. So it wasn't like blatant and frustrated. And he says, the, you know what, wearing the blue cap. And uh -huh. like, what? I can't believe I heard that. And that wow. later went to the supervisor and I said, you know, we all heard that, you know, I have a problem with that, you know, and, and I think you should do something about it. And I remember Nicole, says, JT, I didn't hear that. And we're in the room and he, it was the debrief and he says, did anybody else hear that? Uh -huh. And I'm sitting in a room with, you know, pretty diverse and, you know, some black officers too. And everybody said they didn't hear it except for me and my partner. So, but we knew it was said and it was over the wire. And just yeah. the look on the officer's face, he knew he said it too. So I think yeah. that's probably the most blatant. And it, at that point I knew it was time for me probably to, to go to another assignment. Because, you know, if people would be complicit in the use of that word and mm -hmm. just ignore it, it just, it, it, when I think about it, it really makes me upset even today. But that's probably the most blatant, racist, racist thing mm -hmm. I had to encounter. I had a, I had a fairly good career as uh, regarding, regarding that. And one of the things that I think I became well-known at LAPD was I did a lot of research and, and freelance writing on the history of Blacks on Lost LAPD. So people kind of knew that. And I didn't do it with a chip on my shoulder, Nicole. I did mm -hmm. it in a way where this is our history. This is a part uh -huh. of our history, just like the history of women, just like the history of Latinos. It's, right. It wasn't to make people feel less than, because the way I see it, it's, it's really human nature. And, mm -hmm. I, and the surprising thing about this, and you know, it was surprising to me, and many people didn't find it surprising, the most encouraging people to my research and my stories were whites. Mm -hmm. I, I, used to, I, used to, I used to hear this all the time. GT, I learned so much about your article. When are you going to mm -hmm. write another article? It was encouraging, you know, my career at times because I became known for, and, and really when I wrote those articles, I really wasn't writing them I was writing them to uplift and let black officers know uh -huh. that we have a history and we, we have contributed since 1889 in this department. But I found that my audience was larger and broader than, than what I intended and the most encouragement. Uh, mm -hmm. And I wouldn't say it if it wasn't true. The most encouragement <laughs> I got was from white officers and still to this day. 
it, it sounds like they wanted to learn more about learn more about it. They did. They yeah. did. And, and, I, and I think that's what the fallacy is. You know, I think if this type, these type of trainings are done the right way, all officers will embrace it. Because even mm-hmm. the, back to the implicit bias, everybody is going to initially think, you know, this is, and, and I know cops, and you know cops. It's mm-hmm. like, yes. <laughs> you know, that's not the kind of training that we want. Because in our oh. mind, it's, it's going to, it's going to be uncomfortable. And yeah. it, might, it may cause people to think a certain way about it. But what I found is those conversations and those trainings are valuable because of those things. Because mm-hmm. you have to get past the uncomfortableness. You have to get past your own self-perceptions of mm-hmm. what you are and what you think and what you believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did find, you know, through my, my career at LAPD, that people were more open to those kinds of conversations. And I think even now, in this very divisive uh, environment, people have a perception that, you know, we're not willing to do the hard work uh, mm-hmm. to become more to, to become more responsive to all the people we serve. And I think that's a fallacy. I really do. Yeah. I, I know cops. And then this generation, I don't think my generation in 84 would have been accepting of that for, uh-huh. for really at all. Yeah, yeah. But I do, but I do think that this generation of officers mm-hmm. of the last 10, 15 years, they don't have a lot of the bag right. that my generation has. All right. I, I agree. When I when I see um, officers in my practice, I, I largely do forensic work, but um, I still keep a small caseload of doing treatment. I've noticed that as well. The new newer officers coming along are more open to difficult discussions and, and even mental health treatment. So, I mean, I, I agree. I'm seeing a lot of that and it, it makes me really happy. Well, so. put it like this, Nicole, just the fact that you have business today. <laughs> yeah. In my era, in '84, the last thing you ever wanted to do was go and talk to I somebody know. like this. You know, <laughs> I know. It was, it was, it was, and and not, not that we didn't need it. We definitely need it, but it was a sign, as you know, of weakness. Yeah. And there was a lot of connotations. It's like, you know, uh, are they going to take my gun? Am I going to be deemed fit to work? Right. Yes. Yes. Well, let me ask you this because I have a question on training. So, are there? Because we're talking about there's a lot of um, talk about defunding the police departments and et cetera, et cetera. And um, I want to ask about two things. What are your thoughts on how that's being said versus maybe reforming the police department and putting departments and putting more training um, interventions in there? I guess I'll start with that one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I hear defund the police, one, obviously, uh, it's a horrible, words matter. <laughs> really, really. Right, right, right. And that's a, that's a horrible title because I don't think that's what people need, mean. Because I think, you know, as best I can explain it, defund means take away mm-hmm. those responsibilities, take away resources from policing and channel them to things that officers shouldn't be doing to, um, one, assist officers in focusing on the things they really need to, and mm-hmm. then to not criminalize those things that we often wind up criminalizing that are not law enforcement matters. For instance, homelessness, mental mm-hmm. health issues, crisis. Those are the things that, you know, most, you're not going to get any chief that says, you know, 
we should be doing those kinds of things. And even me at USC, we deal with a lot of distressed students that are in crisis because by nature of being 24-7, we're the basket that everything falls into. Right. Because we're there 24-7, and when social services and all those other things break down, it falls in our lap to handle and do something with uh, on top of it. So defund the police to me, I think, again, horrible title, but at yeah. the same time, I think that uh, there is some value to uh, re, uh, reallocating resources away yes. from police so that you know, people like you uh, can actually do what you're trained for and, and actually uh, have some better outcomes. All we know through our training is we get that call and we're, we've got to handle it some kind of way. Right. You know? And at times, if it's repetitive, go to the same location over and over and over, and we're the only one, and there's no social services kicking in to help make that situation better. The next thing you know, we're going to, someone, someone's going to jail. It really mm-hmm. comes down mm-hmm. to that. Because by that point, sometimes there's violence involved, and it has gotten to the point where that's the quick fix. But that is all yeah. it is. It's a quick fix, and it's a criminal, criminal unnecessary criminalization. Yeah, yeah. And so my next question on the training piece is, like, do you have a requirement? I know um, you guys do, like, is it con- CPEs, right? Continued uh, post-education. So is there, a, um, right. re- is there a requirement? So, like, in my board, I'll give you an example. This might help me explain it better. Like, for me, as a psychologist, every year I have to do, you know, or every two years I have to do X amount of units, continuing education units. But specifically, I have to do ethics, right? So do you guys have anything in place right now where you have to do implicit bias training on a regular basis or some some, some sort of uh, cultural sensitivity? We do. uh, Post does require that, but it's very, I want to say it's like two to four hours biannually every other year. So it's it's like a drop in the bucket, you know. Mm, okay. Uh, so it's it is, but it's not adequate. And one of the things, Nicole, that I am hoping for when we look at reforms, that we start mm-hmm. paying attention to these type of things, these type of trainings, more so on the the things that we're focusing on now, because mm-hmm. as we're seeing play out, these are the things that cause distrust and bad relationships in our communities, mm-hmm. particularly communities of color. It, it is, but it's really, it should be. And the pro- smart and progressive departments are requiring above and beyond. You know, for instance, in our department, uh, we, re- we we do implicit bias and cultural uh, sensitivity and all of those type of trainings. Mm-hmm. We do it not only uh, eight hours uh, every year, uh, but we also incorporate it into the, the roll call training. Uh-huh. That 30, 30 minutes before every briefing, right. every every officer goes out in the field, we mm-hmm. reinforce those values. So, um, yeah, it is it is required, but not nearly what it should be. Not nearly what it should be. And so as a leader in a department, you're also incorporating that into the, you know, roll call, right? And during roll call. Briefing. Yes. Briefing. There you go. Briefing. You, <laughs> yeah, you, you, you have to. You have yeah. to, because if you're going to hold people accountable for that, and you have to, and what the other thing I do is I I try to utilize those things that are in the news. For instance, when mm-hmm. George Floyd, that incident occurred, and it was all over the news, mm-hmm. it was required that every single one of our briefings for the next, you know, that week, talk about it. 
and look mm-hmm. at the video and then mm-hmm. um, in a structured manner, what would the University of Southern California require of you? What would our community require of you if you were a bystander officer? Uh-huh. What, would, what would be expected of you? Right. What, what, can I ask what kind of responses you got from that? You know, and I think the, it would have been pretty much what you got across the country. Okay. We, were all, we were all officers across the country. We were all sickened by it. Yeah. And all of us, you know, you know, we, we were kind of like braced ourselves for a wave coming in, like, okay, here it comes, and here it comes, and the big wave that of all that we're dealing with now. So yeah. I, uh, it was it was positive. You know, what I what I wanted to do, Nicole, to make sure that it didn't get off track was put together and let me see the lesson plan for it, the structured discussion. And I uh-huh. didn't want it to disintegrate into opinions, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because at the, at the very beginning, you have people saying things like, well, we don't know the whole story. Well, you know, we, we do know enough about it to, mm-hmm. to know that fundamentally, and uh, there were so many things wrong about it ethically and morally, mm-hmm. and that has to be a part of the equation as well. I think, so yeah, it went well. But, I, but I'm confident, Nicole, that if you had done that across the country, Mm-hmm. by and large would have gotten a positive re- re- response because I'll be honest with you, most of us were mad. We were upset. Mm-hmm. Like, how did how did you guys let this happen? Because it's not going to just impact your department. We're all going right. to suffer. And we all, right. you know, so I think that would have, those are valuable lessons. Yeah. You can't pass those up. Yeah. And I, I know in your letter, and I'll, I'll go ahead and link it in our show notes when this gets released, but in your, uh, was it, um, not your letter, your, your piece you did with your campus newspaper? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was actually a message to the USC community. And so, it's interesting because uh, the president encouraged me to do that. So. Really? That's that's awesome. I, I really enjoyed reading it. I, I think I saw when you put it on Twitter the first time. So I looked it up again today. And so you mentioned that you were angry about the officers responsible for murdering George Floyd. And, and you say, in less than 10 minutes, managed to erase years of public service provided by the vast majority of peace officers who worked diligently in communities across America to try to re- repair procedural justice, address quality of life issues, and build mutual respect, many while trying their best to keep many of our most challenging communities safe. You say erased in less than 10 minutes. They did. They did. They did. Yeah. And we're, we're, we're seeing it. Yeah. I mean, Nicole, when I hear people talk about abolish the police, when I hear mm-hmm. departments and cities taking millions of dollars away, when I see, you know, the anger at police, we don't deserve this for the most part. You know, um, mm-hmm. a very small segment does and that and let's just put it where it where it lies right it lies with those four officers that were most right. responsible and the one who is responsible for the murder yeah you know but it's it's you know the the, the, the sad thing about this profession you know a doctor can make a mistake and doctor can you know turn out to do something criminal and nobody talks about them with the broad brush that we right law, law enforcement anybody any other profession but somehow some way people have no problem saying you're all bad, <laughs> you know, and, yeah, uh, yeah. and, and I, I struggle with that. I struggle with that because, you know, for the most part, when I, when I wrote that, that's what, uh, and having gone through the 1992 uh, civil unrest in LA, yeah. 
I, I, I kind of knew what was coming. I didn't anticipate this and mm -hmm. this long. I think the perfect storm for this was COVID-19 and mm -hmm. all the things and people being cooped up. And, but it's still, it's still going on. And um, I still, after 36 years of this profession, I, I don't know where this is going. I really don't. I, I, I'm optimistic that it mm -hmm. will be result in better practices for law enforcement because it's time and, and mm -hmm. it's, it's appropriate. Mm -hmm. But I'm still dealing with the anger of what those four officers did to all of us. Mm -hmm. because, you're, because officers, I know all officers that are that are doing some amazing things. Yeah. Dipping into their own pockets. I know of officers who have adopted children that were neglected. Mm -hmm. They, you know, they don't look like them. It's amazing. Yeah. You, yeah. you may, uh, you. It's. I've seen it all. And for those things to be erased uh, in less than ten minutes, it's it's just uh, unfortunate. Yeah, I I agree, and I I share in your sentiments of still working through that anger at those officers because I think as spouses and as, as a wife of a police officer uh, myself and my husband's white, he also is going through some things and even, you know, he, he involved in local politics, unfortunately, <laughs> I think is getting, you know. he's going to be president of the United States. Oh, stop it. <laughs> I don't know, JT. I cannot, I, it, it, this has been very challenging. Yeah. This the climate has been very challenging for me, um, yeah. and I, I don't know how how you guys deal with it. But I I, I share in your sentiments of being angry because of um, some of the accusations and I you know things that are being said you know about my husband towards my husband by people in our own community that. Yeah. You know, I'm just, I, I've cried many days in a row and I, I tell, I tell my friends, I'm like, I've had meltdowns and all when I, when I kind of try to reflect on it and my anger is not going towards them, like the, the people in my community or the activists, it's going toward, back towards why did these officers let this happen? You know, so I share in that with you. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the part that just, I think, you know, we, it is what it is, you know, and they teach us and teach us in the academy, you know, the one thing, and they've been teaching this even when I came on, that it doesn't take much for mm -hmm. all of us to, you know, suffer uh, because of the actions of one or two officers. And right. we've seen it too many times before. And, uh, and, I, and, and I think that's where, that's where we're, we're hurting. And I don't think people quite understand that's a part of it. Because again, Nicole, this is, this is the nature of an officer. An officer, when you get that 911 call and mm -hmm. you're in that radio call, you're going to come. You're going to come uh, and you're going to do everything it takes to get there to help that person who may be, you know, in danger. And you're going to come whether that person is black or white or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's the nature of what we do. And we will go in when we know there's a good chance we may not come out alive. Right. And that's where it, it hurts to know that guys, I'm out on patrol, or officers out on patrol, even in this environment, if that call comes, you still got to answer. And you may lose your life, sacrifice your life to someone who really doesn't care for you just because of what you do. Yeah. And that's a hard reality, but it is what we signed up for. And I think right. all we want is to be at the end of it. Treat it fairly. It's like any other employee in any other job. You know, we're not any actors. 
we are not those four lines. Yeah. And so do you think that we will ever get there, get to a place, no racism at all? Do you think we'll get to a place like that? I have to be optimistic. I really do. Because, you know, it's, it's such an important, it's, a, it's such an important place to get to. I, I have to be optimistic. I really do. You know, because too much blood shed has occurred, too many sacrifices have been made where people have, have, have died in the pursuit of, mm-hmm. of that. So I, I, you know, I have to be optimistic. And I think that, you know, um, I think we will get there. I, I'm not, I'm not optimistic in my lifetime. You know, I think <sighs> we will, we will get there, you know, because um, the evolution of humanity evolution of mankind and womankind, you know, uh, is so dependent upon that. And I think that's, that's the arc of the moral universe. It, it bends towards that mm-hmm. pursuit. Mm-hmm. And so what kind of things, um, like in that report, what they listed, I keep calling it call to actions. I think they call them something else. Pillars. Like, yeah, pillars. What kind of things do you think we could be doing to get there? What kind of actionable things? You know, I think I think as I said in my in my in my message to the USC community, I think we all have to take uh, a good hard long look at ourselves and look at and confront our own biases that we harbor, either that we're aware of, or those things that we have to root out um, just by that that accountability mirror, when you look in the mirror and you say, you know, am I being the best person that I can be? Am, do I harbor implicit biases? Do mm-hmm. I, you know, benefit from my privilege of you know, my race? I think those are some questions, tough questions mm-hmm. uh, that we, we all owe it to ourselves to, uh, to, to, to be honest with ourselves about those. Uh, but I think the things that, we need to do is, is complete. And this is where I have an issue with what I'm seeing today is not take shortcuts. Not to take shortcuts, okay. Not take those, 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 those shortcuts that make it easy to hate or look at other professions or people mm-hmm. through a lens that, you know, make it convenient. For instance, People know all cops are not bad, but if you listen to and look at the news or even some of the things that you're seeing from some of the protesters, you would think that just by virtue of the uniform, you're, you've lost your humanity. Uh-huh. I had someone tell me that I'm worse than a white cop because I'm a black cop. And I mm-hmm. should know that. Yeah. So to me, you know, those are those are the things that, you know, people have a tendency and people have to address those things. And I don't know whether you address that through your vote or mm-hmm. if you address that by confronting it when it happens. But I think oftentimes we, you know, as society, we, we take those with shortcuts because we're afraid. And I think that's where a lot of it is rooted. But I do think the, the, the journey toward where we need to get is by and large an individual one. Mm-hmm. You know, people people often will say, well, it starts in the home. It brings, you know, you, it's how you arrange, and I I I debate that because I think mm-hmm. that you know uh, there's all a lot of other factors that change how people interact with the world and see that. 
Uh, but I do think that a lot of it is rooted in fear. I think a lot of it is rooted in ignorance. Uh-huh. I hope I answered your question. Fear, yeah. No, that's, no, you, yeah, you did. So that's largely an individual thing. But I, I don't thing. think, I, 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 it is not to, not to say that there's not some structural things that, that can't and shouldn't be done. Okay. And don't get me wrong, Nicole, I do think there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of change that needs to come to law enforcement. I uh-huh. think the way we, the way we train officers is not the best way. I think in a lot of ways, the paramilitary model is outdated. I think mm-hmm. you know, it's time for us to go towards more critical thinking, interpersonal, emotional intelligence model uh, for policing. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't discard the tactical stuff because that's what you're going to keep you alive. Sure, but let me sure, tell you sure. this. But most of us, after time, we do that stuff in our sleep. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, we yeah, really yeah. can. You know, but it's the things that we're talking about that it, if you if you're not self aware, the cynicism of everybody that I come in contact with is going to lie to you. Because as a cop, you get a lot of people lying to you. And uh-huh. in your mind, you know, you don't even expect the truth. And when you do get the truth, it's yeah. it's foreign. So you're you're constantly combating the cynicism that is inherent after a couple of years on the job. You have to root that out. And I think our training has to be consistent and actually address those propensities in uh, a cop's nature. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. it was me, you know, after a while, three, three to five years on, I was sick. You know, it's like you, after a while, you, 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 you get so used to being lied to that, you know, it's just, you, you can't be effective. So I think there has to be a shift in how we're trained and prepared for the job and how mm-hmm. we're recruited for the job. Mm-hmm. And, and I think in the uh, report, the, the task force report, they mention moving towards the guardian mindset where probably back when you started, right? And I think even maybe when Ryan kind of came on, they were kind of starting to shift, but it was still that um, like tombstone courage oh, yeah. kind of mentality, oh, yeah. you know, but yeah. moving more towards a guardian mindset. Yeah, the that guardian. was. Guardian, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the problem with the, the warrior mindset, that's warrior the, mindset, yeah. the, the, the guardian mindset, is if you're in a warrior mindset, you have to have an enemy. And oftentimes right. that enemy is the people that you're sworn to protect and serve. So, you know, and if that enemy isn't real or isn't, you know, you don't have that consistent challenge, you make it. And that's where an officer can get and put themselves in positions where they shouldn't be. And that's where, you know, the tendency often come to abusing people's uh, civil rights. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, there has to be a shift. You know, mm-hmm. and then the other thing, Nicole, is the way we're recruited, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's gotten better because, you know, when I came on, there wasn't much difference in how a police officer was recruited than someone that was going into the armed services. It was appealing to your sense of adventure, mm-hmm. your, 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 your adrenaline rushes. That's where the appeal was. And then we looked down the road and we saw, well, why are, are we having so many cops with PTSD? And why are we having so many cops that are getting into controversial shootings? Why is there such a mm-hmm. thrill to go to the most dangerous parts of the city? And But you get what you recruit to. Right. 
Right. So these departments got exactly the types of officers that they were recruiting to. And uh, you've been around uh, cops enough to know that a lot of it is not foot pursuits and gun battles and stuff like that. It's interpersonal skills. Yes. It's those things that, and, but who wants to recruit to that? I think it's time for us to start recruiting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think uh, I do evals, evaluations for hire for uh, people that are appealing. And then I do uh, first rounds for federal agencies. And so they don't really give us any guidelines on that. They just kind of, you know, we do have post standards that we're looking at. You know, there's 10 core standards that you're, you know, you're familiar with like integrity and, and decision-making judgment, but nothing yet on the uh, emotional intelligence. But that's not to say that, you know, we aren't, hiring ones that do have emotional intelligence. I think in the past couple of years, we've, we've done a better job at that, looking at those features or those traits. So it's, it's definitely a, a work in progress to move in that direction. Yeah, but I think it's, it's got to be a monumental shift. You know, it has to be a shift, deliberate and intentional shift that we're going to make this a priority, just like, you know, firearms training, just firearms. like, you mm-hmm. know, self-defense. Yeah, all those things that we put a lot of hours we're going to have to look at. And I, and I think what they're going to end up doing is going to be an extended amount of training for police officers. You know, six months, you know, I think it's going to probably be extended or they're going to have to get rid of some of the things that we have in there. If we, When I look back on my academy training, we did a lot of, you know, self-defense. You know, mm-hmm. We did a lot of shooting. We did a lot of, you know, high-speed driving. We did a lot of that kind of stuff, Mm -hmm. but very little or any, I don't recall anything that told me about the various cultures and communities that make up Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, you know, and unfortunately for me, I I ended up working in neighborhoods that I was familiar with and I kind of grew up in. So it wasn't a stretch for me, but it would have been a stretch if they had put me in West Valley Uh or Devonshire because that would have placed me in a community that I wasn't familiar with right you know but i think those are the things that we're going to be required to spend more time in our training definitely definitely and i want to try to i have two two questions left this one is came through i actually got this by quite a few of the members so it's a common question was what are your thoughts on the blm movement let me see if i read that right because i know people worded it thoughts on the blm uh, movement not the fact that Black Lives Matter, uh, which is a given, but the movement itself. The movement itself is I'm I'm confused by it. Uh, maybe because I Why? just don't because I, <laughs> I don't you know when I when I look at a, a movement when I look at um, a protest when I look because I, I I default to the ones that have been successful like the civil rights movement okay where uh-huh. at the end of it there was civil rights legislation and there was actually some program, some initiative, some legislation. Mm-hmm. I'm not seeing that with Black Lives Matter. I really, all I'm seeing is just the protest, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, the defund the police. But I don't see, and maybe it's my own ignorance. Maybe I just don't know. Maybe I haven't researched it enough. That's the problem I have with it, is that mm-hmm. I don't see what happens next. You right. know, because yeah. I see a lot of anger. I see a lot of protest. I see a lot of uh, request to defund and abolish, but I don't see any constructive program to follow up after that. I see. Down. Okay. Like I saw with 
other progressive movements. You know, when I look at progressive movements over the history of the United States, uh, when women were seeking the vote, they were protesting mm-hmm. and they had an intent. And that intent was designed for changing legislation. Yeah. So it's not just, really having an end goal. You know, to disband, uh, and I get the part about institutional racism. Uh-huh. You know, I, I get that. But, you know, is there concrete plans? Are there steps? Are there legislation? Is there what right. follows? And maybe, Nicole, it's just me. Maybe I just don't get it. But that's my issue. Now, the concept of Black Lives Matter, yes, I do understand that in its fullest. I don't even understand why some would even say, well, why don't we just say all lives matter? If you uh-huh. take a look at that, the terms of historical context, I get all that. But the movement itself, uh-huh. I would, I just don't see where there's anything concrete after that is over. Like I saw with like the civil rights movement where there was the civil rights legislation that was attached. There was separate but equal schools. We want those gone. I did, right. I don't I don't see anything like that. But I do see, you know, where defund and not even clear cut programs as to what is that gonna look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm most departments are all for okay, take away the things we should be doing. But what is the plan? Right. Who's gonna be there at two o'clock in the morning when that you know mental health crisis specialist is needed? Mm-hmm. There's no I don't see anything in place. You know, and we have to be thoughtful and strategic about how we put those things in place. Because if we start doing it and there's nothing in place, it's going to fall back to the cops. Uh It really is. That's what I guess I'm most concerned about. What is what? What's the plan afterwards? And uh, right. And and whether people are going to be patient enough to wait before those structural changes are in place. Because mm-hmm. if you're talking about having non-police pers- persons respond to some of these societal issue-driven calls, we just start moving and start getting that set up because that's a big, huge task in itself. Right. We talk about social workers being assigned at every station on all of the watches 24-7 mm-hmm. and getting them trained and getting the officers accustomed to all. There's a lot of work to be done. And I just don't see it being even discussed. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And I, um, I, I heard on the news I saw, and I've, I've been reading, uh, Berkeley, right, is um, moving towards this model now of sending unarmed civilians out for traffic stops. And so I know, you know, working in the departments myself, uh, not as an officer, but going out and I, I rode, I had a partner, I rode in a car. And then hearing from, of course, my husband, and just the, the stats and stuff, you know, traffic stops are, are they, aren't they the, the most dangerous for an officer? Traffic stops are some of the most dangerous encounters that uh-huh. you can have because you don't know what is in that car. You don't right. know what they're running from. You don't know whether they're armed. You don't know whether they just lost the bank. You know, there are so many dangers associated with, you know, from the moment you, you light that car up, turn on the lights and sirens. Right. You don't know what that reaction is. You don't. It just, they are very dangerous. They are very dangerous. And I don't like that one there. I really don't because uh, yeah. conceptually, I can understand that people's hearts are in the right place. Sure, it's of not, course. It's, it's not well thought out. And it's very, I don't think so. very, very dangerous. 
but I see so many of these type of initiatives that are mm-hmm. very short-sighted. And back to what I said before, you know, let's not take shortcuts on this. Right. Stuff is too important to not think out. And, and I do think there's a lot of knee-jerk policies and programs mm-hmm. and procedures that are just being tossed out. You know, we'll just have non-police personnel make traffic stuff. It's all good until somebody gets hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well intentioned, but not, like you said, not clearly thought out all the way. So. And, and, and Nicole, don't get me wrong. These things can be done the right way. It's just going to take time. Yeah, know? absolutely. It, it, it's going to take time. You're not yeah. going to have it overnight without compromising safety. Right. And I think part of that, when I, when I think about that and, and some of the things I've seen and heard, I mean, they're great ideas. And I think if they were thought out a little bit more, it could, it could be, it could happen. Um, I think part of that comes from people that might have those ideas, maybe working a little bit more closely with law enforcement, sitting on getting involved in like understanding police culture and, and, you know, whether that's joining public safety commissions, going for ride-alongs, because I, I think that's one of my pet peeves is I hear people, they have these really great ideas, but there needs to be more thought that goes into that because they're missing the other side, like how dangerous it could be. And, oh, it's just a traffic stop, but it's, it, it's not just a traffic stop. Right. So, so yeah, I I agree with you on that. Yeah. And I, I look forward to those people coming to the table and, and, Working together with them, right? And I and, and I think most law enforcement departments are as well. You know, they're, we're looking forward to having those collaborations, but we it should be thoughtful. It should be mm-hmm. you know well well thought out because all it takes is a few people to go on a ride along and and you know see what goes into a traffic stop. Then, yeah. You know, one, you run the license plate before, so you know what you're stopped. You know, two. You, you time so that you stop the person in a place that's well lit if it's if it's dark mm-hmm. and all of those things that an officer has to take in uh, consideration before they even uh, stop the person. There's a, there's about five or six things that you have to do and be aware of before you even stop that person. And if you think that you can just you see a violation and you do the stop and everything's gonna go well because all you're gonna do is give them a citation or give them a warning mm-hmm. don't work. doesn't work like that. Yeah. <laughs> it just yeah. yeah. And I, I, I encourage people um, to go on different, uh, different shifts and different areas of ride alongs. Like when I hired my staff, um, I have clinicians that would work for me. I worked in the past with, with us and they did um, treatment with first response, you know, so they're doing the therapy. And we, we told them, you need to go on a ride along. And, and my office is in Glendora. And we said, not in Glendora. But yes, I mean, you can go on a ride along in Glendora, but we want you to take a ride along down at LAPD, 77th yeah. Division. We want you to go right at the Sheriff's Department down in, in Compton, Bellflower. I mean, we want you to see other things and see what they go through so you, you can, it's part of like our training for cultural awareness, uh, working with police. Well, that's, that's very good. Yeah. So, I mean, some people thought we were a little, they're like, ah, I'm not going to do that. And we're like, well, probably not a good fit for you to be working with, with them then in, in treatment because you're not going to understand the issues that come across the, the room there. So, And Nicole, I think that's a part of the problem. A lot of people have a perception of what law enforcement officers do, but they mm-hmm. don't really. The other thing that is often very telling is when we put people through the boss simulator, the, the yes. fast simulator, and that's where you have to make a decision 
Can you, can you, JT, can you talk, tell me about that a little bit more so, our, so, our, so our, our listeners can hear what that is? Some of them don't know what that is. Yeah, what it is, it's simulator, a boss, but it's a simulator uh, where mm-hmm. it's, you know, on a screen, you work your way through a scenario uh, and you have a weapon, it's a mock weapon, and you shoot at the screen mm-hmm. to determine your reaction time and whether your reaction to that scenario was appropriate. For instance, you may get a situation where you're giving directions. And if you're calling out directions, the person on the screen can actually respond to or not respond. For instance, you could say, drop the knife. And Mm -hmm. uh, the person would either drop it or not. And then, you know, what it does is uh, at some point, there's some action that would cause for you to have to make a split second, second decision to use deadly force, which is to shoot or don't shoot. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes what we find out is most people wind up shooting, you know, children and and people that are unarmed because you you have to make those decisions so rapid. Split-second decisions. It it really is split-second decisions. But that's the nature of police work, you know, because oftentimes that's all you have. You know, and, and people get a newfound understanding of what that challenge is like. And we use that a lot for people in the media, mm-hmm. uh, elected officials, and people like that, because they have a, a perception that, you know, well, why didn't you shoot him in the leg? Why did you shoot at <laughs> right, all? Right. You know, why, why didn't you just fire in the air and scare him? All these notions that people have that officers but we're not trained that way because if we're not, if, we're, if, if those seconds we waste, someone can lose their lives or the opposite. Right, right. Which is why it's scary when um, I think of one of the, the common things in, in the community or, or what's been made of situations is the reaching in the pocket, right? And yes. grab, grabbing for something. And then if you're, yeah. you know, of course, if you're naturally, if maybe you're grabbing for like, you know, your, your gum or your keys or, or your cell phone or something, right? You're, you're moving your arm, you're extending your arm right up. And it's like, well, you know, depending on your eyesight and the distance. And it's like, what do you, what do you have in there? I don't know. And, and that officer has to make a split second decision in that moment. And, and that, that, that could be scary. You're right, Nicole. Oftentimes it's what, when they reach into their pocket or they reach toward their waistband and, and then they pull out, you know, a stick of gum. They say pull out some keys. Yeah. Uh, but at that point, you know, your decision making, you have to, you have to make a decision. Yeah. Time. And even sometimes when you are trained, you make a decision it's the wrong one. But that's a fatal decision. That's a, right. that's a decision that you have to make. And then oftentimes what comes away from that is people that are in seats of positions where they want to judge, they have a newfound respect that, mm-hmm. you know, if I was in that situation and I know how fast those things unfold, uh, I can understand the officer's position better. Can can civilians is that is there access to that kind of experience for civilians? It it, it depends on the department. You know, okay. Uh, many departments open that up forcibly. It's just a matter of finding out whether not all departments have those simulators because they get mm-hmm. expensive. But it's a matter of finding out who your department you know, whether you can do that. And one of the things I'll tell the listeners is you know. That is your department. <laughs> you can inquire and say, hey, yes. I heard about this, this boss simulator. Can I go through that? You know, I want to see how an officer has to make pay. And most departments are going to allow you to do it. Yeah. It's, it's, all, all it is is turning on the machine, explaining 
how it works and mm-hmm. that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I, I, I'll have to check and see if um, the, the sheriff's department, I'm sure they have it. I, I actually, I've oh, never, a- I've never they asked do. Ryan, so I'll have to see. Oh, um, oh yeah. Yeah, I, I had to. I, I'm, I'm certain. I know 100%. Actually, I take that back. It's been so long since I've worked with the department. I had, I, I went through it. I actually, I did it with the sheriff's department. So yeah, they, they do have it. Now that I think about it. And oftentimes, in citizen, citizen, yeah, citizen, citizens academy. That's, that's one of the. Things yes. That, you know, when you go to a citizen academy, you'll go through that. Yes. And, and sidebar, um, <laughs> I had to tell Ryan, I did a, a, at a, a fire citizens Academy and I told him, I said, their job is so much harder. <laughs> Just all that equipment. It's so heavy. Oh, and no. then he, he was like, no, you have yeah. no, you have no idea how heavy that gun belt is. And I'm like, I, I couldn't survive that one. I think I got through the police one fine, but I struggled in the fire. So shout out to the fire guy. I had to do it. To, <laughs> shout out to, we do have fire wives that listen too. So. <laughs> sacrilege, sacrilege. <laughs> Firefighters should, should never hear that their job is more, more difficult. Oh, no, no, not more difficult. I mean, I think all you guys in public safety have do, you know, such right. tall, tall orders, you know, and, and my hat's off to you. I, I could never do that job. And I tell my husband that all the time. I, I could never be a police officer but first first responders you know regardless the firefighters depend on a police officer police officers depend on firefighters right i can tell you i mean for LA, for la i mean for any incident that we have involves violence we're calling the fire department for a lot people you don't know what firefighters do firefighters respond to a lot of crimes of violence with the police yes know? so I, you know, for people that think that all they do is fires, oh no, not in LA city and LA County, they don't. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're always there. They're, when I was on calls, all, they were like right behind us. Um, and they come out too, to render aid, even to our mental health calls. Yeah, they do. Okay. Um, so my last, before we, we head off, I wanted to ask you in, in our parting comments, what are some takeaways that you want to leave with the listeners about what we talked about, like, what are some of the key takeaways with everything that's going on and understanding it and coping with it and how to make changes? What are your parting comments? You know, my parting comments will be this, you know, one, we're going through a very unprecedented period in our history and definitely for law enforcement. I -hmm. think that people tend to look at this big challenge of institutional racism, structural racism and all that. And the focus is on the police. We're right. just a small part of that. We really yes. are. And I think that the public needs to understand, one, uh, if you're going to take on this monumental task, it's don't just stop at just the police. Right. Uh, this issue is a lot broader than that. So that was my number one. And my number two, uh, even in this toxic and hostile and divisive climate, mm-hmm. uh, we need to support. You know, And there's a lot of people, and I get a lot of calls, People saying, you know, Chief Thomas, we support law enforcement. Good. And that's the majority. That is the majority. My mom used to say just because a voice is the loudest doesn't mean it's correct. So the loudest voice is, uh, I think, uh, a minority. And I'm not discrediting the things that you know, need to happen because they do. You know, all mm-hmm. these things need to happen. Structural racism and institutional racism has to go. Right. Yes, there needs to be structural changes to law enforcement. But at the same time, as I said earlier, 99% of the police officers in America will give their life to people that they don't know. And, I, and they, my request would be, we need that support. And we need people to step forward and make their voices heard. 
in a manner that says, yes, law enforcement uh, definitely needs to progress and change, but we're not willing to broad brush all police officers and say, disband and, uh, you know, defund and all those things. Mm-hmm. So I think that would be my second is uh, we need that support. We're not going away. I, unfortunately, so I think those would be my, my, my two points. One, um, you know, don't stop at just law enforcement because if you just stop at law enforcement, you're going to have the same problem again because mm-hmm. it's bigger than just law enforcement. And two, support. Support, you know, because we need that now more than ever. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Can I ask you to repeat the part about, because I missed it, uh, the loud, the loudest voice, you said the loudest voice, something, the loudest. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I said, <laughs> again, forgive the reception. I said, <laughs> my mom used to say, just because a voice is the loudest doesn't mean it's right. And oh, okay, right now, okay. I think the, the loudest voice that's out there is <laughs> very loud, but I'm not saying that it's wrong, mm-hmm. but it needs to be, there needs to be some, some balance to it. And I think voices of okay. reason need to be heard as well. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I appreciate you talking. But I don't, I don't, I don't say that they're wrong. Right. Right. I like how you, it's the balance though. Yeah, it is. It's gotta be a balance. Yeah. Yeah. I think cause um, there's this misconception sometimes too. It's like, you know, I was told that growing up, if you keep talking, you're never going to get, you know, go anywhere. I hear that, yeah. I, I, you know, and that's not true. Um, it's, yeah. but, but you have to, you do have to have some balance there, right? There has, to, there has to be some balance. And again, you know, there's a tendency to take those shortcuts to right. brush people and situations without thinking it through. Because like I said, defund the police. Okay. We're all for that. Who's going to at two o'clock in the morning um, to those calls? Because of the question that when I when I bring that up at USC, and it's like, okay, we you know, yeah, DPS, you guys shouldn't be handling students in crisis, but most of those crises occur after five o'clock in the afternoon, between five o'clock in the afternoon and six o'clock in the morning when nobody's here but DPS. Right. Let's put something in place. Right. Action. Yeah. We need some more action. Well thought through action. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for being a guest on my podcast. I may I may ask you to come back for other things because I will. I will. I, well, I'll, you know, I'll tell you now I will. With your expertise and leadership, I, I love it. For our members and audience out there, as always, please tag us with your favorite takeaways at Blue Wives Tribe on Instagram. If you love this episode, please subscribe and download some more. Leave us a review to help us get the show out there to other police wives and girlfriends. Tell us what you enjoyed and what other police wife topics or mental health topics you want to hear about in the future. Don't forget to hashtag BWT podcast and hashtag Blue Wives Tribe. Until next time, stay safe out there.